Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we wrap up our series from the book of Revelation. Pastor Tim will be zooming out once more to try to show us the big picture that John would have had for his friends in the churches that he wrote these letters to. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim for this week's message. Hey, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. We've got one week left. One week left in our Revelation, uh, in our Revelation sermon series. And if I haven't met you yet, my name is Tim, and uh, I'm thrilled that you join us. I'll do my best. Um, we've been in this for seven weeks now. Uh, we have covered a little bit of ground. Uh, we've covered some archaeology. We've covered some weird mythic stuff. Um, we've, we've looked at the, the ruins and the landscape of, of several cities. We've, uh, last week, we looked at the Jewish calendar. And uh, we talked about how John, the author of Revelation, who writes this letter to his seven churches that he's, he's uh, caring for or pastoring, uh, John will take the, perfectly take the culture he's speaking to and, and marry it to the text that he loves. And so um, we talked last week about how there were 500, John, more than any other, Revelation, more than any other book in our Bible, quotes the Old Testament. 184 direct quotations or direct references over 500 Old Testament allusions. So we've covered some ground. If you're new with us, um, I'll do my best to, to keep you with us. But uh, we've covered some ground. And uh, for me, it's been a fun ride. Um, it's been, uh, I've been working on this series for years. This has been my like, dream series for years. And so um, for those of you who've made it to all of them, thank you. Um, gold stars to you. If, you. if you've made it to all of them, plus Tuesday nights, cutting room floors, we have one more of those. Um, but if you made it to all of the things uh, or caught all the messages online, um, hopefully uh, you feel like I feel like it's been, it's been a, a ride and it's been um, really gratifying. Um, however, what I recognize is that it, can't, it is possible <clears throat> in a series like Revelation uh, where we're looking at this kind of heavy context, uh, lots of history, lots of culture. It's possible to, to just receive it as information that we, we can leave thinking, I learned a thing today, which is always good, but um, if it's just information, it doesn't lead to transformation, then, um, then I, I would say we probably wasted our time. And so for us, uh, really, and especially today, I want to give you some stuff, I want to give you some information, but my prayer and my hope is that we would see how the words of John to that, those seven first churches, um, how, they are, uh, how they connect to the world that you and I live in, and hopefully you find some relevance for your actual life and our shared life together. With that, um, I also recognize it's a holiday weekend, and if your holiday weekend is, was like mine, anybody cut a tree down this weekend or put up a tree? Okay. Who, it, who, yeah. Um, started listening to Christmas music again. Already sick of it, aren't you? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so like Christmas, uh, but the, this, this weekend's always filled with lots of things. You add a U of M game on top of it. Um, our brains cannot be so sharp. If you're like mine, like it's, it's possible that we can come in this morning and our brains are a bit foggy. So I thought let's start with uh, a bit of an exercise to get our minds <clears throat> in the right spot. And so I want to show you a video that will hopefully keep our minds sharp. And um, if you've seen this video before, don't shut out the answer. Um, but uh, if not, um, here you go. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? No! 
answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? There he is. <laughs> Why do I show you a moonwalking bear on the last week of our Revelation series? Um, it is possible in a series like this that we, uh, we've, heard the, we've heard Revelation taught on, or maybe we just assumed for so long, that Revelation is a hidden code book about the end of the world. And so we've spent so much time looking at it this way, that it is possible that what was so obvious right in front of us, because we were so focused on looking at it for, like, what are the codes and what is the riddle, that we miss what John is actually trying to say to his world and, I would say, uh, what God is still trying to say to our world. And we can read it one way that we can miss out um, on what God is doing in front of us. Who's, anybody see that for the first time right now? Okay, did, okay, okay, let's do a moment of honesty. Who... Did not see the moonwalking bear the first time. Yeah, yes, it works. It worked. The first time I saw that video, I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Um, that, I love it. I love it. Uh, so what I want to do this morning as we, uh, as we work through this last bit on Revelation is I want to start zoomed all the way in and then slowly we'll zoom out. And my hope, so like last week we did that with the scriptures and how John read the scriptures and we saw like, wow, the festival's um, like it's, it feels like a, it's like a backbone or a structure to the whole book. But I hope by zooming in and kind of zooming out, what is fuzzy at first, by the time we leave, we'll, we'll take some shape and we'll have a sense of, okay, that's what's going on in this book. Um, and then if, we, if, if I can be clear enough, maybe we can even zoom high enough out that we can see how this would relate to our world uh, in this weird, unique sliver of time that is 2021. Uh, with that, uh, let's start in Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to start with some words that are somewhat familiar by now if you've joined us at all for the series. We've camped out most of our time in two chapters, uh, Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Uh, this is that uh, part of Revelation where John is addressing seven different congregations. We looked at four of them in depth. And so I want to start there only this is the question this time. So before we were looking at how does this relate to the city that John's writing, I now want to ask the question, are there any similarities or themes that connect the seven churches? Any shared language? Any repetition that connects the shared language of this? Uh, so let's start in Revelation 2, verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work. This is to the church of Ephesus. Your hard work and your perseverance. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Then jumping ahead to verse seven, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the words John chooses are hard work, endurance, have not grown weary, perseverance, have not grown weary, and to the one who is victorious, victory. Hmm. That's the first church. Second church, Smyrna, uh, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. 
So to Smyrna, John talks about a victor's crown and the one who is victorious. Interesting language. Uh, Third church, Pergamum. Uh, Let's go to verse 17. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. He's sensing a pattern. I will give some of the hidden manna. Church number four, Thyatira. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. I will give authority over the nations. Are you catching the theme? Hard work, perseverance, endurance, victorious. Uh, and, and two, or in one place, he even talks about the language of a victor's crown. Do you see how uh, the U of M fight song feels like it's a perfect connection, right? Michigan fans, you know what, the, what he's talking about. Uh, church number five, to the church in Sardis, the one who is victorious will, be like, will, like them, be dressed in white. Church number six, Philadelphia, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is, com- that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Then last but not least, number seven, Laodicea. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as, my, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So again, you have this language of endurance, perseverance. Uh, every single one of the letters you have reference to, to the one who is victorious. Um, what is going on as you, as you look at these seven letters from a distance, what shared language, what themes, what is John trying to say? Now that word victorious is a, a Greek word, nikeo. Nikeo shares at the root of it is the word Nike. Um, now when you hear the word Nike, what comes to mind? Shoes. And when you think about those shoes, where are those shoes most often worn? In what kind of activity? Sports. Basketball, football. It's sports. Um, we hear the word Nike. Uh, Nike was the goddess, the Greek goddess of, of victory. Uh, we hear the word Nike, and we immediately jump to the shoes, and we jump to sports. And then when you take that idea and you link it to endure, work hard, patience, it feels, does it not, that John is using sports metaphors. Why is John, to a church who's under persecution, using sports metaphors? That's the question. Why? And, by the way, he uses this language twice, to the, the, that you will receive the victor's crown. That's exactly what the Romans called the prize of winning a, a, an athletic competition. In our world, you get a medal, or you get a ring, or you get a cup. Um, but in their world, if you won an athletic competition, you would get a laurel wreath, which they referred to as the victor's crown. Why is John, in writing a letter to a persecuted church, talking about sports? What is going on here? Now, let's zoom out a little bit. Uh, zooming out a little bit, see if something comes a little bit clearer. Uh, if you take those clues, like there's a sports metaphor, and you add it to, well, maybe if we were to walk through the cities, we could understand why John would use these sports metaphors. Maybe just by walking through the city itself, these seven cities, some things will come clear. Now, um, I've shown you lots of pictures over the last seven weeks of ancient ruins, probably far more than you ever cared to look at. But let me ask this question. For those of you who were with us, um, you get a free pass if you weren't with us. But if you were, if you were with us, what structures were common between the cities I showed you. What did you see come up again and again? Different, different images again and again in every one of these cities. Gymnasium, Colosseum, pillars, 
temples, theaters. Yeah, you see these same structures come up again and again. In 336 BC, a guy by the name of Alexander the Great, a Greek, Alexander the Great wanted to conquer the world. He did so by introducing the world to an idea. The idea was Hellenism, is what they called it. Hellenism was a philosophy, but as much as it was a philosophy, it was a military strategy. Alexander the Great believed that we could conquer the world without ever having to lift a sword. You could conquer the world through an idea. That idea, he said, is the Greek way of life, Hellenism. More specifically, Alexander the Great said, if you put in every major city on earth, no matter, it doesn't matter what language they speak, doesn't matter what culture they have, if you put in every major city on earth four structures, they will willingly give their, their cities over to you. They'll pay taxes to you because their economy will grow. You give them four structures. What are the four structures? He said you give them a temple um, to, to celebrate when the, he wasn't anti-religion. Um, he, in fact, worship whatever God you want. Give them temples to whatever God they want. You give them theater um, so that they can uh, be entertained. It's the media of the day, entertainment. Give them temple, give them theater, give them arena or stadium or coliseum, give them arena um, to, to, to exercise, sport, and give them gymnasium, uh, education. You give those four things and Alexander the Great says, I will deliver you a fifth thing, the agora. Remember, the agora is the marketplace. He said, you give me those four things. You give me religion via the temple. You give me entertainment via the theater. You give me education via the gymnasium. And you give me sports via the arena. And I'll give you an economy. And once you have an economy, when the money's coming in, as long as the money's coming in, you will love Hellenism. You'll love it. Uh, across the world, people will welcome this idea in. Alexander the Great uh, essentially Hellenizes the world. He makes the world Greek in one short lifespan. Um, now, uh, over uh, the course of the last few weeks, we've looked at two of those structures at some depth. We've talked a lot about temple, and we've uh, looked at some of those ancient gods, Dionysus and, um, oh, who else? Zeus. We looked at Asclepius, some of those gods. And we looked at the theater, uh, how the, the propaganda machine of their day, um, how entertainment really was about propaganda. We looked at those two at some depth. There's two more that we haven't looked at. I wonder if there's some clues to the sports metaphors in the last two. Um, so uh, the last two being the gymnasium and the arena. Uh, if you walk through any ancient city, um, by the way, the only cities you don't really find this in are Jewish cities. Almost every other community um, adopted these. The Jewish people said no. You can understand why the Romans hated the Jews and then later the Christians. Um, they said no, they won't take them. Uh, but if you walk through almost any other city, you find these four structures. Uh, the gym, let, me, let me take you into both of them quickly, painlessly. Uh, and then again, we'll zoom, we'll zoom out. But let me take you into them. Uh, first, the gymnasium. This, uh, this is a gymnasium in the city of Sardis. We were in Sardis, I think week three of our series. Um, this is the uh, gymnasium was the training ground. It's where you practice. Now, uh, they, uh, the Greeks and then later the Romans believed that education was holistic. There was a mind component, there was a body component, and then there was a spirit component. So in this area off the back, in the porticos, you have, uh, in the back you have classrooms. And you would go to the classrooms and you would learn um, rhetoric, 
You would learn how, uh, you would learn persuasive argument. You would learn how to think. Uh, then uh, outside um, in this area, in this area, this is known as the palestra. This is where the real training happened. This is, this is where you would exercise. It was an open courtyard, um, often surrounded by pillars where you would practice the sports. Now in their days, the main sports um, of the original Olympics, wrestling, jumping, or sorry, long jump, running, javelin throwing, shot put, boxing, gladiator combat, and horse racing. Uh, it was mind and body, but it was also spirit. And what they understood was that uh, if you can run fast, that's not, that's not because you're so, you're so sweet, right? You, you trained hard, awesome, but who gave you the ability to train? You can run fast, good for you. But who gave you that power? So you're smart. You know that two plus two equals four. Awesome, what are you gonna do with it? Who gave you that ability? Who gave you that brain? Not everyone knows that. How do you know that? Who gave you the ability? Who gave you the... Standing in the apse, this area right here, of every Roman Greek gym, standing in the apse would be the god of the apse. Every city had their own god. The two main gods of the gym were a a god named Heracles and a god named Hermes. Um, But depending on your city, you may have a different god standing in the apse. You, every morning before school, you would pledge allegiance to the God in the apps. Uh, Every evening as you leave, you'd be reminded, thank you, God of the apps, you gave me the ability to do this. So every day you pledge allegiance to the God of the apps. Um, Essentially, you offer your sacrifice to the God of the apps. And every evening you thank God before you go home, that God in the apps for giving you the ability to learn. This is the gymnasium. Second, uh, so this is about training. The second uh, is the stadium or the arena. Um, now, uh, many stadiums are like the Colosseum. They're circular in nature. But in Turkey, so where John lives, that area, uh, the Roman province of Asia Minor, many of them are shaped in this shape. This is known as a hippodrome, a hippodrome. Any, um, any idea what the main activity of a hippodrome would be? Chariot races, chariot race. The, uh, the word hippodrome comes from two words. The word hippos, which means horse in Greek, and the word dromos, which means course. A hippodrome is a horse course. <laughs> Anybody else, your brain goes to a horse is a horse. Of course, of course. <laughs> Unless, you know it? <laughs> no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course. Unless the horse... The kids, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you are missing out. This was talking animals before. They, they somehow had to figure out how to make a horse talk. I don't know how they did that. Uh, but they had to figure out how to make the horse's mouth. Was it peanut butter on the lips? Is that? Probably. <laughs> the, other sport of, uh, uh, the other sport that was practiced in the Hippodrome was foot racing, the oldest sport. So you'd practice foot racing. Now, you could do other activities there. Gladiator combat could happen there if that's all you had in your community. But the two main ones was horse racing and foot racing. Now, um, uh, let, me go, let me give you a picture from a city called Aphrodisias. This is the excavated. Uh, it would have been higher, but this is what's left, um, kind of dug into the earth. Uh, you notice the shape for the chariot racing. Yeah. Uh, Now there's two sections. You have the playing field where the athletes or the horses would compete. And then you have the stands. 
Just like in our world, there's kind of two sections in uh, any stadium. You've got the athletes on the field. Their job is to perform, and our job is to cheer them on. Now, um, in any ancient stadium, there's a section, just kind of like in our stadiums, there's sections for those who have like a, like a club box or something. They had sections for royalty. They called it the Lord's box or the royal box. And so it was for the town dignitaries. If somebody had money, they could get it. Um, but if you're the emperor and showed up a town, to a town, you could sit in the Lord's box. Um, you had the best seat in the house. This is the arena. Now, these two, uh, the gymnasium and the arena work together. The gymnasium is about practice. The arena is about performance. The gymnasium is where we train. It's where we work it out. It's where we, we get in shape, mind, body, and uh, spirit. But the arena is where you live it out. If you only train and never work it out, why are you training? If you go to the arena without doing the work in the gymnasium, you're going to look like Ohio State yesterday. You're going to be a laughing stock to the world. <laughs> These two are connected. Okay, now, let's, that's, the, that's only the first of many. <laughs> let's zoom out of it further. Um, I tell you about the gymnasium and the arena uh, because the Emperor Domitian, the Roman Emperor Domitian, who lived at the time of John's writing of this book, would invest in building two massive structures at the time of John's life, two massive structures in his neo-chorus, his capital city, the city of his worship, a city known as, who remembers what his neo-chorus was? Ephesus. In Eph- now, Ephesus, before, before Domitian takes power, Ephesus already had a massive, uh, a massive temple they had a massive temple to the god Artemis. It was Artemis's neo-chorus before it was Domitian's, the center of her worship. They already had a ma- one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. They already had a 250,000-person uh, theater, incredible theater. So they already had two massive structures, but he noticed what they lacked. They had a couple, but they were not substantial. They lacked a gymnasium, and they lacked an arena. And so he said, in my holy city, because again, It's about propaganda. It's about Hellenism. In my city, he said, we are going to have a gym and we are going to have an arena. Now, um, recap on Domitian really quickly. Domitian is the emperor. Uh, I would argue maybe historically we could say he's the second most evil human that's ever lived, uh, maybe second to Adolf Hitler. Just an evil, evil man. He... uh, he wore a golden sash across his chest. Always, in any image of Domitian, there's a scroll in his hand. The sash is his symbol of authority. It's his office. The scroll was a symbol of his power, sealed with the imperial seal. Only he could break the seal. Uh, Domitian, according to his own court poet, a guy named Pliny, loved to hear the words, uh, my Lord and my God. He saw himself as the God in the flesh, the one who held the seven stars in his hand. He even printed coins. And on the coins, you have Emperor Caesar Domitian Savior. And on the backside, Divine Caesar Domitian with seven stars sitting on the world. He's the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. He's the one who controls life and death. This language should sound familiar. John uses this language to talk about Jesus. Domitian, according to Pliny, again, the ancient historian, um, he said that Domitian was like a beast with blood dripping off of his teeth. That's his language, a beast with blood dripping off of his teeth. That's how violent he was. He loved violence. Uh, Domitian, this beast, in order for you to sell him the agora, you'd have to offer a sacrifice to Domitian. 
you would then receive his mark, proof that you've offered the sacrifice. The beast had a mark. I know I'm flying through this. This was week one of the series. But do you get a sense of who Domitian is? Domitian says and Ephesus was his neochorus. It was the center of his worship. Ephesus was like um, to, uh, to a Catholic, the Vatican is the center of their worship. Um, to a Jew or, or a Muslim, um, Jerusalem is the center of their worship. The city matters to the worship. To uh, Domitian, Ephesus was the center of his worship. And he noticed they don't have a gymnasium. They don't have an arena. So he decides to embark on a massive building project. One of the first things he does in office is, I'm going to embark on a massive building project in my city. The first thing he wants built is a gymnasium. And uh, now normally a, a structure like this would take you roughly a lifetime to build. Domitian builds a gymnasium in two years. Why a gymnasium? Well, uh, Olymp- Mount Olympus, where Zeus's throne is, the creator God, the father God, his temple was a gymnasium. And so Domitian said, if it's good enough for the father God, he may have power, but he's not the emperor. I want mine bigger and stronger than even the father God Zeus. And so he he embarks on a massive building project of a, this is Ephesus, right off the sea. There's the next slide. There, right here. Um, And then then there's one more that looks kind of like this. There you go. This area, a massive, you see the palestra, you see the porticos, a massive, a massive building project. Now, in the apse of every gymnasium stood what? The God of the gymnasium. Um, Which God do you think stood in the apse in Ephesus? Domitian, a statue, a massive statue of Domitian. You trained in his honor. You competed for his glory. You did the work so that when you showed up to the events and you won, the world wouldn't say, well, what a great athlete. You're so great. The world would say, Domitian surely is good. He's surely strong. Just like, kind of like the Olympics in our world, you compete for the nation. And so the goal isn't just that you receive an award. The goal is that on the back end, people say, look at how many awards America won. Look how the USA did this year. The best of the best athletes, Domitian wanted training in his gymnasium so that he could have them compete because he loved the sport. He loved the games. He loved watching the toughest men. It was always men. The toughest men get out on the field. He loved watching the gladiator races or gladiator competitions. He loved watching the competition. He loved the games, and they compete, they would compete for his honor and for his glory. Um, You do not compete for your nation, you compete for your God. Um, Now, every city had their own God, right? Priene had the God Athena, Um, oh, uh, Laodicea, Um, Thyatira's God was Apollo, Jerusalem, remember the God, uh, the Neochorus to the God? Yahweh, according to Josephus, that's it's the Jewish Christian God. Um, and they would compete in honor of their God. Uh, Ephesus was Domitian city. Now, okay, let's zoom out another layer. Is it hopefully starting, hopefully starting to come together? Um, uh, yes, Domitian declared Ephesus a city, but also someone else lived here. Now, 30 years before Domitian, a guy by the name of Paul made his way through Ephesus. 
Paul is one of the first Christian church planters. And Paul, for three years, sets up shop, literally sets up shop in Ephesus. He raises up disciples, 12 of them. He begins a movement. These followers of Jesus begin to refer to themselves as the way. It's not a belief for them. It's a way of living. It's how we actually do life together. You can't say you believe in Jesus and then not forgive your neighbor. You can't say you believe in Jesus and then talk bad about those. It's a way of living. So Paul, for three years, develops this practice in people of following Jesus. He then hands the ministry over to Timothy. Timothy, when he receives the ministry, is a kid, a teenager. He's a teenager. How do we know that? Because Paul will again and again refer to him as such. Paul will say things like, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. That word young is a Greek word, technia. It means a young teenager. Under Timothy, the church will grow in Ephesus. Timothy will then pass the reins off to an older gentleman, 80s '80s or 90s. That older gentleman's name is John. John once walked with Jesus. John lived a life following Jesus. John decides he's going to spend his retirement not on a beach somewhere, not hanging out at a golf course. Those are fine things to do. But John says, put me in the city of the beast. That's where I want to give my legacy. Put me in Ephesus. So John moves to Ephesus, and there's a church community with John. John, when he's in Ephesus, he's there as they're building the gymnasium. I picture, um, by the way, the Christians, if I show the, that map again, of, not the map, the um, model. So uh, most people lived in the city proper, but the Christians, the ruins we found for the Christians are in these foothills back here. Now, um, though it's a bit of a walk into the city, it is kind of an, like, a stunning view of the Aegean Sea. You have a stunning view of the theater, of the gym. You have a stunning view of this uh, hippodrome arena over here. They had a view. I, I like to picture those early Christians, like John gathering them on the hill and saying, hey, listen, see that? Um, he built his gymnasium in two years thousands of employees to pull this thing off. You see all those employees going to work every day? You need to work for God like they're working for Domitian. He's not your God. But all the while, those Christians realizing as progress is being made, soon Domitian will himself, soon Domitian himself will be there. And when Domitian comes, can you hide on the hill? How many years can you go when Domitian shows up without bowing to Domitian? Can you hide? They'll take John and they'll separate John from his community. He's in exile on an island somewhere when Domitian comes. They'll take John and separate him. Who else do they take? We, we don't know. But imagine you're the early church. Did they take somebody else? I don't know. Did they, did they take your grandpa, your son, your wife? And the whole time you're sitting there watching this thing as it's coming together. Soon, you know, Domitian is coming. Um, it'd be a spectacle. First, the boats would come in. And the boats would come in off the harbor. On the boats, the legions, the army. And the army would come, make sure everything is secure, line the streets. Uh, with the army, the army band. Boom, 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 boom. And they would line and then following the army would come the royal. 
Uh, people from royalty from all over. The Kardashians are here. The Biebers are here. The Kennedys are here. They're all coming. And they would line. Then would, out would come the band, uh, the, the choir, made up of 24 singers representing the 24 major gods of the Roman world. And the band would come, and the band would remind you why you gathered, not to celebrate their gods. The band would remind you that you have gathered to celebrate Domitian. Worthy is Domitian to receive our glory and our honor and our praise and our power. He's the reason we've gathered. Then off the boat was the God himself, the living God, Domitian, behind that stone. And you up on the hill are watching this so-called God who is a monster come down, make his way into the palestra to christen his statue. This event, all the pomp, all the circumstance, this event had a name. The Romans referred to this event, this moment in which the emperor would arrive into a city, the the celebration in his name, as an advent. I know. It was a 12-day celebration filled with drinking, filled with partying, filled with promiscuity. It was wild. Um, But it was all a celebration to announce the arrival of the king. Domitian's coming. They referred to it as an Adventist or an advent, uh, a 12-day celebration. Today is the first day of a Christian advent. Um, we We are, for the next several weeks, Awaiting the arrival of Jesus. That's what the word means. We're waiting for. We're counting down for the arrival of Jesus. We use the same word. Did they steal it from us or did we steal it from them? The answer is we stole it from them. Why? I picture those people up on the hill seeing this whole thing play out. Recognizing that the Romans are saying that their God is king, the Romans are, or that their king is God, the Romans are saying this. No. Remember what Pastor John told us before he was hauled away. He's a fraud. He's a fraud. And I, I picture them hijacking the language, cleaning it up, and offering it back to God as an act of worship. Jesus is king, not Domitian. Um, But this was Domitian's advent. Uh, He wasn't the first one to have an advent. Um, The first advent was to a a so-called Roman god, an emperor named Caesar Augustus. Um, He shows up in our Christmas story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. The Christmas story, read in this way, is about two different advents. Compare the advents. Um, He had one advent. Uh, The emperor Tiberius had three of these 12-day Advent celebrations, Domitian had 22. 22 parties in his honor and his glory. Um, The boom, 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 boom. You would make his way from the, back to the model. Sorry, I'm all over my slides. I'm sorry. You'd make your way from the palestra. He would wind his way down. This is called Harbor Street, Marble Street. You'd make your way down the processional way and you'd make your way to the Hippodrome where the games would happen. He loved the games. Now we got to zoom out a little bit further on the games. What are the games, what, what was going on in the games? Now uh, the historian, a guy by the name of Richard Horsley, does his best to, to try to put together a, an order or a liturgy of the games. Like what were they doing? What was the athletic events? What was the structure of the games? We don't know for sure. We're still looking for the, 
like the, the crumpled up program in the bleachers. We haven't found it. Um, but we have an idea based on, a, based on another game of what his advent, because his advent we know was an Olympic style event with athletic competition. That's what we know. Um, so the question is, what was the order of events in his athletic competition? Now we don't know for sure, but there is another game that we know more about, uh, um, a pretty famous set of games known as the Capitoline Games. Capitoline Games existed about 400 years before. This is a lot of, I'm giving you so much information. You have one week left and I'm trying to go bleh. Okay. The Capitoline Games existed 400 years before Domitian. 400 years, they were Roman games. The Romans said, if the Greeks have their Olympics, we want our games. They played them for years, but then they kind of fall out of fashion. Until an emperor comes on the scene who loves the games. He decides to resurrect the games. Any guess as to what that emperor's name is? Domitian. Domitian brought back the Capitoline Games. The Capitoline Games, uh, he tweaked them a little bit. Tweak number one. Before anyone competes in any games, they have to pledge allegiance to Domitian. You honor him. You worship him. He's the God who gives you the game. So number one is you've got to dedicate the games to him. The second thing he said is, you are, we are going to compete in the name of all of our gods. Your trade guilds, everyone's job has their own god. The god of that, that job, a god of another job. There's 24 major ones. The god of each of the communities of the trade guilds, you would all pick your, your, your heroes and we will compete it out. Domitian was confident his guys would win. So each of the 24 religions competed. The main event, though, of all of the competition was a chariot race. In the Capitoline Games, the chariot race was known as the Ecus Octobris, E-Q-U-U-S, Octobris. Uh, it means the October horse. It was the event to kick off the games on October 15. Now, if you take what we know about the Capitoline Games and, uh, and Richard Horsley's work, and you put them on top of these 22 Advent, 22 Advent celebrations, which many just refer to as the Domitian Games. Here's a rough outline of how the games would likely have gone. Here we go. Step one. The emperor would enter the arena, the hippodrome, with a trumpet blow to announce the beginning. The emperor would make his way in. He would find his way to the Lord's box, and he would have a seat. His throne, you could say. He takes his, comes in, has a seat on his throne. Step two, a herald would stand and make declarations to the local provinces on behalf of the emperor. Uh, the, the, the declarations would talk about the things that the town is doing well and would talk about the things that the town is not doing so well. So um, Sardis, the earthquake ravished you, and yet you took the tax money that we gave back to you and you rebuilt your town. I have this for you. Good job. But I have this against you. Your roads are still a mess. We can't get our military in. What are you doing? Fix your roads. Uh, Laodicea, I have this for you. Um, you didn't need our help financially. You did it on your own. Good job. I have this against you. You have not invited us back. You think you can do this without us? Invite us in. I have this for you. I have this against you. That's step two. Step three, um, the acclamations. A choir, again, made up of those 24 musicians, would come in and they would sing songs. I don't know what the songs are, but I picture them something along the lines of, worthy are you, Domitian, to receive power, honor, wisdom, and praise. You, you're our guy. And then the crowd would respond by saying, hail Caesar. 
Caesar is Lord. We actually see that response when Jesus is arrested. That's how they respond. Caesar's our Lord. Hail Caesar. Caesar's our Lord. Step four. Caesar would take that scroll in his hand and he would open it. That only he could open the scroll. Where's that language sound familiar? Then uh, the first events, the first event, always a horse race, a chariot race. Then the athletes would enter dressed in white, ready to compete, um, carrying the banners of their trade guilds, of their gods. Uh, the athletes would enter. Then the games would begin. Boxing, racing, gladiator games. And you would watch the whole thing. And then step number eight. This one's a bit weirder. Um, <laughs> The, uh, the historian Plutarch describes this step, and we don't know quite what to do with it because of the way he describes it. Basically, he says, there's a young dude dressed in a purple toga, and he's got a chain or a leash and an old man on his hands and knees, and he's pulling the old man around the arena. That's step eight. Um, many think it was a picture of like the god Hades, and, and that was where they cleared the, the playing field of all the the dead bodies from the competition, the gladiator games. But we don't quite know. Step nine, the trumpet blows. Um, and uh, when the trumpet blows, the winners would receive their laurel wreath or their victor's crown. Now, there you sit, sitting on a hill, looking at the games, looking over all this. Two years you've watched as they massively try to put all the infrastructure together around this gymnasium and around this arena for two years. And then you see the boats and the boom, 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 boom. And you know what's coming as the legion makes their way in, followed by the royalty. The Kardashians are here and the Biebers are here and all, I don't know who's popular anymore, but all of them are here. They make their way in, following the royalty of all the other, the other areas. Following them comes the royal choir. And the whole time you're watching it, and then comes this so-called God Domitian, You know you're not supposed to hate, but you hate him. You hate him, you hate him, you hate him. You hate him for what he's done to your community. You hate him for what he's done to your family. You hate him for what he's done to your pastor, John. You you know you're not supposed to hate. You're a Christian, but something in you, you hate him. And this is his advent. This is his arrival. He'll have 22 of these. And he makes his way down from the Palestra, down that sacred way, the processional way, into the arena. What are you feeling in that moment? Small? Powerless? Who are we to ever change anything? It's, is it ever going to change? Hopeless? Like, what are you feeling in that moment? And as he takes his seat in the Lord's seat, his throne, what are you thinking in that moment? This is why it's been such a passion for me that we talk about Revelation. This has been a series I've been wanting to teach on for nine years. We've done it in different moments and different parts, but I've wanted to teach through all of this for nine years because um, it's it's not just history. It's not just history. Like, is this not... I've, I've had this sense of we've got to reclaim this book because for so many people, we don't read the book of Revelation. It's too scary. And, and without context, I can see that. I understand that. Um, and so we tend to look at Revelation as this scary book about a scary God, about a scary end of the world. And what we miss, and I think what John is trying to give us, is this, yes, the world is scary. Your world's scary too. I just got two messages before this, this about some things that people are going through in their lives. It's Scary stuff, scary stuff. But he's not. 
I, I, I love this, this particular book of the Bible um, because I think at times we need to be, re- there's times in our lives where we need to be reminded of the intimacy of our God, right? That, that God loves you so much that he takes on human flesh and will be born into six inches of manure to say to you and I that I love you. And there are times where we need to be reminded that God takes on flesh and blood and God becomes intimate, We need those times, especially when we feel like God is detached from us and God is distant. We need to be reminded that God is intimate. But there are other times in our lives when the world is ripping us apart, when pain and heartache and loss are driving a wedge through our community, through our family, when it feels like the world has grown hopeless and cold, when, yes, we need to be reminded that our God is intimate, but we also need to be reminded that he's God. He's bigger. He's bigger. We need to anchor our hope in something bigger than just whatever the circumstances are because the circumstances themselves look too big. They look like they're devastating. What I love about Revelation is it reminds us of who he is. Um, If there's anyone who knows Jesus in the flesh, like his humanity, it's John, right? John one of the 12 disciples, one of the inner three disciples, sees the transfiguration, sees, sees things the other disciples don't see. John is the disciple who is the only disciple who will not scatter when Jesus is arrested. John is the only disciple who's at the cross. John will be the first disciple. Actually, he'll be um, preceded by two of uh, Jesus' female disciples. But then John is the first dude, disciple, who's at the tomb. John is the one who is referred to as the beloved one of Jesus. Throughout, read the Gospel of John. It's, it's the beloved, the beloved, the beloved, the beloved. John knows Jesus better than anyone. And yet when John writes Revelation, and John says, I saw Jesus, but I saw him in his full, not just his humanity, I saw Jesus in his divinity. In John's language, verse 17 of Revelation 1, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. When John sees Jesus for who he is fully, John says he's bigger and he's terrified of him. Jesus actually will have to follow it up. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. If you read the whole passage, the the way Jesus is described all of the images that got, uh, that got ascribed to Domitian, the scroll, the golden sash, all of it, Jesus, Jesus reveals all of it as a fraud. That's why I love this book. Bless you. Um, I think there's seasons in my life where, uh, and I'm sure your life is very similar, where we just need those, those moments to realize the anchor is deeper. Some of you, have gone through some stuff that is heartbreaking. Um, I, I would say that in the school of pain, I'm in like elementary school compared to some of you. You're, you're working on your doctoral thesis, right? You've lost, um, oh, I, I struggle to even say, some of you have lost children. Like there's no greater pain I can imagine that I don't even want to go there emotionally. Um, some of you, we need, we need to anchor our souls in something deep. Revelation for me has been the most personal book of the scriptures for me. Um, this, this book of our Bibles was the book I turned to when, uh, when I lost a loved one in my life. This was the book I turned to when 
My wife and I um, had a miscarriage a few years back. This was the book that I turned to in my life when, when I, this is actually the first book in the Bible that I dedicated a large portion of time to memorizing entire chunks of. Um, I needed the words like here in seasons. I picture that early church sitting up on that hill and uh, seeing it all play out. The boom, 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 and the, the chariots and all of it playing out. And Domitian smiling in his Lord's box, thinking nothing can take him down. I just picture, um, I picture a little boy looking up at his dad saying, why can't we go to the games, Daddy? Why can't we do that? And I picture in that moment, everything down there looks so awesome, incredible, and everything up on that hill looks so small and weak. Right? Everything we have as Christians, right? what do we have? A potluck? Look, they got a feast. What do we, like, everything we have doesn't compete with that. that. Look, at, look at the temple. Look at the theater. Look at it all. Like, like, how can we say our God is God when we got nothing? We're up on the hill. Look at the action down there. And I picture a shaky voice from an older woman in the community pull out Pastor John's letter. And just begin reading. Let me just read you a few portions. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. I picture you look down at your hippodrome with all the action. It doesn't look so powerful now, does it? And I picture her continuing, voice growing a little stronger now. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor, glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and they worship. And I picture that moment where you realize what John has been doing this whole time as you zoom up above it. John, first nine chapters of John's revelation mirrors the Domitian games, right? There's a, there's a trumpet blow to begin the games. Then there are declarations made. Then there's acclamations, a choir of 24. He sits down on the throne. He's dressed a certain way, scroll in his hand. Who can open the scroll? It's Revelation 4 and 5. Then there's a horse race. Why is that in there? Have you ever noticed that? Like, what a weird detail. Why a horse race? Domitian loved the horse races. Then uh, the saints come out dressed in white. There is what feels like a gladiator match. Read it closely. Then out comes Hades and out comes more trumpets. And I picture you sitting there realizing like, what? He's giving us something bigger to anchor ourselves in. It is so easy when life has us thrown, um, when the circumstances of our life have just like, we have no parameters. Where do we put this? Um, Those of you who have lost loved ones, those of you especially if those loved ones are younger than you, um, those of you who have seen somebody you love go through an addiction, those of you who have lost a job, those of you who have battled significant depression and anxiety, those of you who cannot think of one reason to lift your head off the pillow, the deep stuff. It is so easy to look down at all the deep stuff and say, I can't move on. It's too big. Revelation, John, invites us to look out at a God who is bigger. Does it make the stuff any less big? Does it make it any less real? Does it make it any less scary? But what it does is it gives us a deeper perspective 
somehow in all of this, like watching a video of a moonwalking bear, somewhere maybe in all of this is a God who's weaving it together and redeeming all of it. That's the invitation of John. Let's have a word of prayer. Oh, Lord. Our prayer as we sing this last song is that, um, Lord, we have a, a couple hundred people in this room and we'll be singing. Um, but Lord, would you give us an imagination this morning to see what's actually happening right now? Lord, help us to see around the world right now, Christians are gathering, some of them illegally gathering to celebrate you. Uh, and then Lord, help us to zoom out even further and to recognize that there is a band in heaven right now with all those we, we love who have gone on before us uh, Lord, we get to join the band this morning. Uh, Lord, help us to declare your glory, your, wor- your worth, your honor with everything we have. Lord, even if we're not singers, Lord, we give you our full surrender of our hearts. And even this morning, Lord, we, we will learn to be singers because, God, you are good. And so, uh, Jesus, um, as we usher in your advent, um, we do so with a deep humility and also a deep joy. Jesus, we love you, and we pray this in your name. And everybody said? As always, we're grateful that you would spend a little time with us. For more information about South Harbor Church, joining our community, or any of the things you hear on the podcast, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.